morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Thursday, June the 2nd, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. UN officials express concern about the humanitarian impact of armed violence in the eastern DRC. We cannot lose sight of the fact that armed violence remains widespread throughout the eastern DRC, whether in Ituri, South Kivu or other parts of North Kivu. That is Martha Pobi, the Assistant Secretary General for Africa in the UN's Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. And the United States names Ambassador Mike Hammer, a veteran diplomat, as the new envoy for the Horn of Africa. And Malawi's President Lazarus Chakwera orders investigations of the Vice President and other top officials involved in a corruption scandal. One of these principles is that every citizen has a constitutional right to defend themselves against an accuser. And at this point, none of these individuals have been charged by any court where they can answer for themselves. In Zimbabwe, a new app is helping journalists in the country to carry out their duties safely. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, UN officials say they are concerned about the humanitarian impact of a resurgent crisis and armed violence in the eastern DRC, estimating that more than 75,000 people have been internally displaced and thousands of refugees crossing over to neighboring Uganda. Ghanaian diplomat Martha Pobi is the Assistant Secretary General for Africa in the UN's Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. She told a U.N. Security Council meeting in New York that a number of armed groups continue to prey on the residents of Eastern DRC. We cannot lose sight of the fact that armed violence remains widespread throughout the Eastern DRC, whether in Ituri, South Kivu or other parts of North Kivu. A multitude of armed groups continue to prey on the civilian population, undermining efforts to achieve lasting peace stability and development in the DRC and indeed the region. In April of this year, the East African Community Conclave on DRC meeting in Nairobi featured the leaders of Kenya, Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda and DR Congo. They pledged to support President Tshisekedi's efforts to stabilize the region. President Kenyatta also invited representatives of armed groups active in the eastern DRC. However, many groups did not make it due to what they said were logistical reasons. Ms. Pobi says that she hopes such interventions can continue to provide a basis for finding a lasting solution to the restive region. The two-track process launched at the heads of state, second heads of state conclave in Nairobi on 21st of April has provided fresh impetus to find durable solutions to the continued presence of foreign armed groups on Congolese soil. I am encouraged by the fact that Rwanda and the DRC have decided to refer to the expanded joint verification mechanism of the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region to investigate reported instances of human and material damage caused by explosive ordnance originating from across their respective borders on 23rd of May. 
That is Ghanaian diplomat Mata Pobi, an assistant secretary general for Africa in the UN's Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. She was speaking at the UN Security Council meeting in New York. In Malawi, President Lazarus Chakwera has ordered investigations of the vice president and other top officials over a corruption scandal connected to a Malawi-born British businessman. Britain's National Crime Agency arrested Zenuth Abdul Rashid Sata last year for allegedly providing kickbacks to Malawi government officials to win contracts, a charge he denies. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The order from President Chakwera comes after civil society organizations demanded he fire all government officials named in the ongoing British judicial proceedings involving businessman Zunef Abdurashid Satam. Satam is accused of bribing government officials in order to win huge contracts from Malawi's police service, defense force, and immigration department. The list of people suspected of having benefited from the kickbacks released by Britain's National Crime Agency last month, includes Vice President Saulus Chirima, Inspector of Police George Gainja, State House Chief of Staff Prince Kapondang Gaga, and former Anti-Corruption Bureau Chief Rene Kimatemba, among others. Chakwera told journalists Tuesday that he is distressed and frustrated by the corruption allegations, but he said it would be premature for him to fire the officials because doing so would violate principles of justice in the Malawi constitution. One of these principles is that every citizen has a constitutional right to defend themselves against an accuser. And at this point, none of these individuals have been charged by any court where they can answer for themselves. Another principle is that everyone's side of the story must be heard. And at this point, none of these individuals have even been invited for interviews or questioning by investigators to hear their side of the story. Chakwira said a third principle of justice is that everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And at this point, no court in Malawi has charged these individuals of any crime. Chakwera ordered the Anti-Corruption Bureau to make its own investigation into the issue and submit a report to him within 21 days. Some commentators said it would be good if the president suspended the officials accused of the bribery allegations. But political analyst George Piri says Chakwera's position on the matter is justified. Since the mentioning of their names came from the UK's court, and these two courts follow different procedures and patterns of law, I think that made him not to suspend them. If, if they were mentioned by the courts in, in Malawi, I think uh, he would have suspended them or we could have seen him deciding otherwise. Charles Kajoloweka is among leaders of various civil society organizations that are aging President Chakwera fire within 21 days or government officials connected to the issue. He says he hopes the report from the Anti-Corruption Bureau will be made public. And we will remain vigilant to ensure that the moment the president receives this report, he makes the report public. If he cannot make the report public, we know SCB should be able to make the report public because at the end of the day, we want to know the truth around this state capture. 
and that those who really, you know, have got criminal questions hanging over their heads should be able to face uh, the wrath of the law. Vice President Chidima told the reporters last week that he would not comment on the allegations until all processes are complete. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta on Wednesday presided over Kenya's 59th Madaraka Day or National Day, which is commemorated every June the 1st. It celebrates the day in 1963 when Kenya attained self-rule after being a British colony since 1920. This year's Madaraka Day celebration is President Kenyatta's last public holiday before the end of his tenure in August. Atieno Ojambo reports from Nairobi. Speaking from Uru Gardens in Nairobi while presiding over this year's 59th Madaraka Day or Internal Self-Rule Day, President Uru Kenyatta said that Kenyans have a chance to elect the first woman deputy president in August. President Kenyatta used his last national holiday to endorse Martha Karua, who is opposition leader Ella Odinga's running mate in the August 9 polls. Odinga and Karua are running under the Azimiola Umoja or Resolution for Unity Coalition, which is led by President Kenyatta. In August of this year, if it is the wish of the Kenyan electorate, we have a chance of electing a woman and shattering the glass ceiling by assuming the second highest office in the Republic of Kenya. So ladies and gentlemen, if our women were part of the liberation struggle, advancing their cause intentionally is a duty that belongs to all of us. We owe it to them, we owe it to ourselves, and we owe it to our country. And I am indeed proud to have been part of this push for women leadership in our republic. Deputy President William Ruto failed to address Kenyans during the celebrations for the first time since President Uru Kenyatta took office in 2013. The unusual activity has been viewed by political analysts as a sign of the bad blood between Ruto and President Kenyatta. There's been tension between the two, caused in part by Kenyatta's refusal to back his second-in-command as a candidate for the presidency in August during Wednesday's celebrations. Kenyans had anticipated listening to Ruto on his last Madaraka day as deputy president. Instead, they watched President Kenyatta, after awarding state awards, invite the president of Sierra Leone, Julius Maada Woni Bio, to speak. President Woni Bio is in the country for a five-day visit and was the chief guest at the commemoration. Leaders allied to deputy president have criticized the act, saying it was very demeaning to Ruto. Nindi Nyoro is a Kenyan member of parliament. He says, we have witnessed the humiliating act that was portrayed by the president today and we want to tell those behind the spiteful act of sabotaging the protocol of National Day celebrations that this will be your last of such acts. Madaraka, which is Swahili for authority, is celebrated every year to commemorate Kenya's attainment of self-rule in 1963. Kenya went on to gain full independence on December 12, 1963. This is President Kenyatta's 10th Madaraka Day celebration since he came to power in 2013. It is also his last national holiday before the end of his tenure ahead of the August 9 polls. Tieno Odiambo, VOA Daybreak Africa. In Nairobi, Kenya.
A new UN report says that an estimated 500 civilians have been killed in attacks carried out by armed forces and Islamist groups in Mali from January to March of this year. The UN's Malian mission, known as MINUSMA, said in the report that the killings represented a 324% rise over the previous quarter and highlighted the failure of Mali's military junta to limit human rights abuses or stop groups linked to al-Qaeda and Islamic State from carrying out campaigns of violence. MINUSMA documented 320 human rights violations by the Malian military in the January to March period compared with 31 in the previous three months. The most notable case was in the town of Maura, where witnesses and rights groups say that the Malian army, accompanied by white fighters, killed scores of civilians they suspect of being militants. And the United States has named Ambassador Mike Hammer, a veteran diplomat, as the new envoy for the Horn of Africa. Hama was until recently the U.S. ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he was known for his outspokenness about the country's issues. Anli say that he would have to contend with multiple crises in the region, including conflict in Ethiopia and the political crisis in Sudan following the October coup. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. A new app is helping Zimbabwe's journalists stay safe when out reporting. Set up by the Media Institute of Southern Africa, the tool is seen as an important resource leading up to the country's 2023 elections. Columbus Mavunga reports for VOA from the capital in Harare. In an environment where journalists are at risk, a new mobile phone app could prove to be a valuable tool. Developed by the Media Institute of Southern Africa, known as MISAM, the app acts as a panic button. Nompilos Manje from Mr. Zimbabwe says the media watchdog set up the app after documenting a trend of unlawful detentions and assaults against journalists. So in light of um, those trends, which we have seen to actually increase during election periods, Mr. Zimbabwe launched um, this alert button because it, it is very timely and will be very useful with the general elections coming up next year and also for purposes of reporting any media violations and calling for assistance in the event of any media violation. If a journalist is in distress, they can press a trigger icon on the app, which immediately alerts MISAM and the key contacts to the emergence and the person's location. Blessed Mklanga, a journalist with the Alpha Media Holdings News Group, has already signed up for the app. After an arrest in early May, he sees the value of being able to seek help quickly. I was arrested just a few weeks ago while I was covering elections in Chitungwiza. There was an amazing response from Misa Zimbabwe, from the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights in Zimbabwe. Chiefly because when we were arrested, the other journalists who were there who also then uh, made calls and we managed to get uh, quick responses. But imagine if there was no one around. When President Emerson Mnangagwa took over in 2017, he promised to improve the media landscape in Zimbabwe. But Reporters Without Borders says levels of violence against journalists remain 
alarmingly high in Zimbabwe and harsh laws are still in effect. On Monday, Nick Mangwana, Permanent Secretary and the Minister of Information, told reporters the government is promoting development journalism, stories focused on the economy, climate change and infrastructure. He says authorities are not standing in the way of journalists' work. It is very important and paramount that the welfare of journalists should be elevated to a level where it becomes an integral part of the developmental projects that is being rolled by government because the media are a key component of creating the critical mass buy-in from the public to the national development goals. Mangwana promised a media practitioner's bill in parliament soon as part of efforts by the government to allow journalists like Mshanga to work freely in Zimbabwe. The ability of media to work unhindered is vital as Zimbabwe prepares for elections next year. During that time, says Mlangam, the MISA app will be an asset. It's going to be very useful and uh, comes as a relief and guarantee to me as a journalist. Reporters Without Borders recently ranked Zimbabwe at 137 out of 180 countries on its annual index where one is the most free. Columbus Mafungam for VOA News, Harare, Zimbabwe. Let's go to West Africa in Nigeria. A clergyman of Nigeria's Methodist Church has revealed the church paid a ransom of nearly a quarter million dollars for his release. Gunman abducted the prelate Sunday while he was traveling in Nigeria's southeastern Abia state. The payment comes as Nigeria's president is expected to sign a bill punishing those who pay ransoms with up to 15 years in prison. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The prelate of the Methodist Church of Nigeria, Samuel Kanuuche, made the announcement while briefing journalists in Lagos on Tuesday, soon after his release. He had been received by a cheering crowd of church members and immediately held prayers of the church before the briefing. Kanuuche said the church paid about $240,000 as ransom to his abductors to secure his freedom and that of the two pastors traveling with him. Eight armed men ambushed them on their way to the airport in Abia State on Sunday, shooting sporadically of their vehicle before taking them hostage. The clergyman's driver and one other church member escaped the assault. Kanuichi said the kidnappers showed them the rotted bodies of previously kidnapped victims who could not raise ransom payments and threatened to do the same with him. Nigerian authorities have yet to comment on his release, but officials have repeatedly objected to paying ransom for kidnapped victims, saying the payments make the abductors more powerful. Archbishop Chibuzo Oboko heads the Methodist Church in Abia State. He says paying the ransom was necessary. They would not have released them if that was not done. It wasn't the security that intervened. How effective would that law be when security agencies are not doing their best? What is the law for those who kidnap and demand for ransom? Armed groups and criminals have kidnapped hundreds, possibly thousands of people for ransom across Nigeria over the last two years. 
UNICEF says the number includes at least 1,500 students abducted in North Central and Northwestern Nigeria since late 2020. In an effort to curb the abductions, the Nigerian Senate recently approved legislation that would punish ransom payments with up to 15 years imprisonment. The bill would also punish kidnapping with a death sentence if the abductee dies in custody. Rights groups and families of kidnapped victims continue to protest the measure. Among them is Abdul Fatai Jimo, a spokesperson for the families of passengers kidnapped from a train in Kaduna State in late March. It's an abnormal bill. Abnormal in the sense that in, in a country where such a bill can, can exist, it will be a country that has a law in place that where anybody is kidnapped, that person must be rescued within 48 hours. Without anything like that in place, there's no way that can stop anybody from paying ransom. Nigerian President Mohamed Buhari has yet to say whether he will sign the bill into law. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Debrick Africa continues. Aid agencies warn the number of people facing starvation in the Horn of Africa is expected to reach 20 million by the end of September without a stronger response to an ongoing drought. The warning comes after the fourth rainy season in a row for the region without adequate rain. The worst drought in 40 years has killed more than 7 million livestock that people depend on for food across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. In some parts of East Africa, communities have not seen significant rainfall for the past two years. 67-year-old Yusuf Gure lives in northeastern Kenya. Gure says he has lost 294 animals to drought. He says we have never seen such a persistent drought, a drought that has wiped out pasture and a drought that has left animals with nothing to feed. He says you have to buy food for the goat and cattle to keep them alive. He asked, where do you get the money to feed them? And you are unemployed. Shashwat Saraf is the regional emergency director for East Africa with the International Rescue Committee. He says pastoral communities living in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia are feeling the effect of the drought and that millions are on the move in search of water, food and pasture. So these are seeing anywhere between 60 to 100 percent loss of livestock uh, which is the mainstay for the population. Because they have lost the only source of livelihoods, we are seeing massive displacement happening of households and people moving to urban centers or moving to other locations uh, and, and to find ways to make uh, their household food secure. Agencies say that since mid-2021, one-third of all livestock in Somalia has died and 3.6 million livestock have died in Ethiopia and Kenya. Aliona Sinenko is the regional spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross. She says Somalia is the most affected country for the three and decades of conflict have complicated the situation for those suffering and aid agencies. The needs are extremely high and sometimes you look at people and you see people who were displaced and uh, they lost everything. So it's difficult to say that people are getting the help that they need because the needs are, uh, the needs are so important. Uh, uh, so yes, uh, and also we speak about the uh, crisis that has been is one of the most protracted crises in the region. 
and there is a certain level, of course, of donor fatigue, especially when there is so much competition for the humanitarian funds. So sometimes uh, we are also like we have to make very difficult choices. The combination of harsh weather and rising food and foil prices has made the humanitarian outlook very worrisome for months to come. The UN Humanitarian Office, UN OCHA, says Somalia is at risk of famine and more than 80,000 people are experiencing extreme hunger. Aid agencies also say many households lack food and other basic needs. UN OCHA officials said on Tuesday that severe acute malnutrition is on the rise across the three countries and poses an immediate threat to children's lives. So far, the UN and aid agencies have reached 6.5 million people in the affected areas with food, water and health services. They want more funding and food are needed to save lives in the coming months. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. Thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.